Imagine a place that is wealthier than most places, where there is no shortage of sports and entertainment venues and restaurants and hotels and other businesses in the marketplace, and plenty of people with enough money to spend at those places. But imagine that this place in its wealth and in its blessing uh, had become uh, self-centered and individualistic, uh, had become corrupt in its practices, had begun to neglect the poor, and had eventually uh, become very divided and bitterly divided against one another. Now, the gospel has made it into this place, and so the church is there. And for a season, it even thrives in both numbers and spiritually. Uh, But eventually, the church, like the world around it, begins to compromise, and they also become materialistic and greedy and self-centered Uh, They also begin to forget the poor, and they also become bitterly divided against each other. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. Uh, But I'm talking about the first century city of Corinth, who has so much in common with the world around us today and the American church today. Corinth was a city that sat on a fun geological feature that you may remember from school called an isthmus. Uh, And an isthmus is just a little land bridge that connects two big pieces of land, so that if you want to get from one to the other, you got to go across that little isthmus. And that also separates two large bodies of water, kind of like how Central America separates the Atlantic and Pacific Ocean, and it also joins North and South America. Now, that meant for them that someone who wants to travel on land from one of those bodies to the other has to go through Corinth. And... Someone who wants to sail from a place on one of those big seas to the other big sea, usually the most advantageous way to do it was to sail to Corinth, who had a port on one side, take the short journey to the other side of Corinth, where the other port was on the other sea, and then sail to wherever you wanted to go to. So whether you were going by boat or by land, you were probably going to journey through Corinth in that part of the world. All of the traders all of the merchants, and that meant that Corinth got rich. Plenty of hotels, plenty of harbors, plenty of jobs, and the riches piled up. So when Paul got there to bring the gospel, we read about this in Acts 16 through 18, the way that the apostle describes it is that the people in that region dedicated themselves to nothing but the telling and hearing of something new. Just tell me something new. What's the word? Uh, He gets there and he finds it like this, not very receptive to the gospel. And you might think that he would leave, but the Lord tells him, no, I have many people in this city. Stay and preach the gospel. He stays. He preaches for a year and a half. Many people come to Christ and the church of Corinth is founded. Then Paul moves and goes on to the next place. And as you might expect, once he leaves, the church begins to compromise and become like the world. Immorality creeps in. They stop loving each other. They become bitterly divided. Greed creeps in. Mistreatment of the poor creeps in. And so Paul writes them a letter to correct them and to bring them back to a lifestyle of holiness and love. And today we start a sermon series going through that letter that he wrote to them. 
So if you're just joining us, this is a good time to join us. The brand new start of a sermon series through the book of 1 Corinthians, which is a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth to call them to leave for good the immorality and the sin of the world around them and live a life of holiness and love. Today we ask kind of the foundational questions. Why does God call Christians to live differently than the world? Why does he call us to love each other when the world is very busy at war with each other? How could I possibly live a life of holiness and love? Have you seen me? Have you seen what I was like before I came to Christ? How would I ever do that? Those deep questions Paul answers in the first few verses, and so we look at them today. Let's look together at 1 Corinthians 1, verses 1 through 3. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. These are the words of the Lord, and through them today, he calls his church to live lives of holiness and love by reminding us that we have already been made holy and we are already loved. So there was a pattern to letters in that day, as there is today. You're probably used to putting the name of the person you're writing to at top getting down to it, and then signing your name at the bottom. They had a pattern then as well. And like a lot of us like to do in letters and emails today, we like to kind of take that pattern and adjust it to proclaim some Christian truth. For instance, a lot of us have email signatures, and if you're a believer, probably, I don't know, half a third of us in this church, go ahead and throw something in our email signature that points to Jesus. You might sign your emails in Christ and then put your name, or you might put a Bible verse at the bottom, something that points to Jesus through those normal conventions of letter and email writing that we do. Well, Paul essentially did the same thing with the letter writing conventions of their day. They would start out their letters with the name of the person sending it, where we end it like that, they start it like that. And so a Roman official might start his letter with something like Felix, appointed by Caesar to be governor of such and such a region, right? Paul takes that and says, well, I wasn't appointed by Caesar. I was appointed by Jesus Christ. And I speak not with the authority of Caesar, but with the authority of Jesus Christ. And so he adjusts that convention to put truth into it, writing as in verse 1, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. This is his way of saying that Jesus Christ is Lord. He was appointed by Jesus, and he answers to Jesus. In the same way, people of that day would start off a letter with, uh, with well wishes, right? A, a Roman official might write and might say, uh, good fortune be upon you and your household, or something like that, right? Well, Paul's writing his letter, and he says, well, the the world is not in the control of impersonal fates who give out good fortune. The world is in control of God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gives grace and peace to his people. And so he writes instead, 
Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Not all that different from us signing our emails in Christ Dave or putting a Bible verse at the bottom of the email signature. He is using those conventions to communicate Christian truth. Now, I've told you a little about how he does that in verse 1 and in verse 2. Uh, sorry, verse 1 and verse 3, but I want to focus this morning on verse 2 because the truth that he communicates there is to me maybe the most surprising thing that he says in the whole letter. And that's saying something because he is going to say some surprising things in this letter. But you might not notice how surprising it is when you read it if you don't also read the whole letter. And of course, since we're at the beginning, you haven't read the whole letter yet. Uh, What he does really simply is he says who he's writing the letter to, the church that's at Corinth. And he calls them sanctified in Christ Jesus. That means that they're holy. And then he does that again. He says called to be saints together. They're saints. They're holy. And they're God's church, the church of God that is in Corinth. And then he says, this is not only true of you, but it's true of everyone who in every place calls on the name of the Lord Jesus. So he says, you guys belong to God. You are holy and you have a unity with every other Christian in all of the world. That sounds pretty standard Christian truth, doesn't it? But it is profound when you consider who he is writing to. Because guys, this church is a mess. Let's just walk through the letter real fast and let me show you how big of a mess this church is. He will start in verse 10, getting down to it with his appeal. And he appeals them to unite again because the church has formed bitter divisions and factions around celebrity teachers that they love. He spends chapters 1 through 4 pleading with them to be united again because they're a divided church. He moves to the next issue in chapter 5 where it becomes evident that they have a man in their church who is sleeping with his stepmother And rather than correct him for this, he says, and you are proud. They are waving the pride flag over this member who is sleeping with his stepmother. Uh, Chapter 6 shows us that the members of this church were suing each other. There were lawsuits going in this church. And then shows that there was even more immorality going on than the one man who was sleeping with his stepmother. It gets a little interesting at chapter 7 where we learn that despite their very rampant immorality, they were also teaching that for a husband and wife to enjoy intimacy within marriage was wrong. It's wrong for a man to even touch his wife. So from one side of their mouth saying that marital intimacy is wrong, and then from the other side committing acts of immorality outside of marriage rampantly in their church, both at the same time. You move on to chapter 8, where we learn that they had issues with idolatry going on, to chapter 9, where we learn how selfish they were, and Paul has to teach them not to be selfish. Chapter 10 shows us that there even more there was idolatry going on. And then in chapter 11, we learn that they were holding the Lord's Supper in a way that crushed and dismissed the poor. Of all of the times to mistreat the poor, they're doing it while they're having the Lord's Supper. Chapter 12 shows us that they were using their spiritual gifts to brag and flaunt their abilities, not for each other's sake and for the Lord's sake. 
chapter 13 tells us that they don't even understand what brotherly love looks like because they aren't acting in love for each other. 14 shows us what a mess their worship services were, completely out of order. And if all that weren't enough, in chapter 15, we learn that many of their teachers are denying the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, rampant immorality, rampant heresy in the church, bitter division, and idolatry. And when Paul addresses them, he calls them twice saints, holy. And that's what we're going to rest on this morning. If he can write to a church like that and say, you guys are gods, he has claimed you. You guys are holy, you're made holy by God. You guys have a unity with every other Christian on earth. Now that is profound and that is worth dwelling on. So, I have one point this morning, I'm going to break it down into four parts. And the point is very simply this. The moment we call on Jesus, he makes us part of his holy church. So, I'm going to break that into four pieces. Who are we talking about? People who call upon the name of Jesus, what does that mean? And then what three things happen to them? Well, God claims them as his own. Uh, God makes them holy. And they become a part of his church. So we roll that together through the phrase, become part of his holy church. Uh, Let's break that down. Uh, What does it mean to call upon the name of Jesus? And who are the people who have done this that we're talking about this morning? Well, it's those who call upon the name of Jesus the Lord. Uh, and that is an Old Testament phrase we used from Genesis just about all the way to the end of the Old Testament as a label for the people of God. Uh, it meant to worship the Lord, the God of the Old Testament, as God and to count on his promises and his character for your salvation. So it was really a way of saying what we call faith. I worship this God as God, and in the promises that he has made to me, I find my salvation. For them, it was calling upon him to keep his promises, to provide for them, to care for them, and to send a Messiah who would save them from their sins. Well, we with our New Testaments know that that Messiah did come, and his name is Jesus Christ, and he is God-made man, and we know just what he did to save us from our sins, that he died to pay for sins, and he rose from the dead to pay for sins. And so when Paul writes the very same phrase, he adds two words to it. He says, who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that means worshiping Jesus Christ as God as the God of the Old Testament, and depending on him and his character and his promises for our salvation. A long way of saying what we often just call faith, trusting Jesus for your salvation. Now, if you are one of the many in this room who have done that for a while or doing that right now and say, I trust Jesus for my salvation in this way, uh, what we're going to talk about today is about you as well. 
If you are not, though, I want to call you right now. There is nothing stopping you in the middle of a sermon. You don't have to wait to the end of a sermon. There's nothing stopping you, you know, 20% into a sermon from looking up to the Lord and saying, Jesus, would you save me? So I want to declare to you that he has died to pay for sins. He has risen from the dead to guarantee eternal life. And he calls you right now to look to him for salvation from sin and death. If you're willing to look to him in that way, these words are about you, even if that truth is only eight seconds old for you. So that's who we're talking about, those who call upon the name of Jesus. Uh, What three things does verse 2 say happens to those people? What happens to us? Well, first, he claims us as his possession. He essentially says, that one is mine. We see this in the opening words of verse 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth. Uh, Those words, of God, that's a possessive noun, uh, and so it could just have easily been translated to God's church in Corinth. Uh, The point is, this church belongs to God. The people who call upon the name of the Lord belong to God. And this speaks to a truth that is said throughout the Old and the New Testament. God calls his people often a people for my own possession. Uh, The Psalms call Israel a people for his own possession. And Titus 2 says that Jesus gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness, that is to purchase us, and to create for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. What the gospel does, in a sense, is make you his. When the scripture says that he redeemed us, what he did was pay our debt and purchase us. And that is a logic that Paul is going to depend on later in the letter. Often these truths that he kind of sneaks here in the beginning become very important later in the letter. This one's no exception. Later, he's going to depend on this truth that we belong to God if we are his. And he's going to tell them, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. He's going to say that to those who are committing immorality with their bodies. You can't do that because you don't belong to yourself. You belong to God. There were others in the church who had ambitions to sell themselves into slavery in order to make material gain. I know that sounds bonkers, but that's how it worked back then. You could try to do that. And he tells them, no, you're not your own. You were bought with a price, so do not become slaves to men. Don't do that, right? So the fact that we belong to God matters to Paul in this letter, and it matters to our lives. So the idea here is that we don't belong to him because we're good. We're supposed to be good because we belong to him. This is kind of like if you have kids or if you've seen a really healthy family functioning or if you are a child, uh, this is kind of like having kids. Um, if you've got kids, uh, they're not yours because they're good, right? Some of you in your hearts are like, amen, right? They're not yours because they're good. Uh, you do, though, expect them to be good, and you're, you're teaching them how to go the right way. You're doing that because they're yours, right? They're not yours because they're good. You want them to be good because they're yours. Uh, how cruel the parent of a child who who holds their sonship or daughtership over their head and makes it contingent on how well they behave, right? 
If you don't perform this well in that soccer match, you're not my child, right? How cruel would that be? Uh, If you don't do this the way I want you to do this, I'm going to disown you. I'm not going to treat you like my child. Well, that is not how the Lord treats his children. He says, you're not mine because you're good, right? You weren't good enough to be mine. No, I want you to be good now because you are mine. Now, that speaks completely against the modern ethic system that the world has right now. Uh, The basic ethic out there right now is do whatever you want as long as you don't hurt anybody else. That's kind of the logic that all our politics is built on, all of our discussions is built on. Do what makes you happy, just don't hurt anyone else. And the belief underneath that for most people is that your body belongs to you and that other person's body belongs to them. And so do what you want with your body because it's yours. Just don't hurt that other guy because his body belongs to him, right? This is where we get our ethics of consenting adults from. That entirely breaks down if one person in the equation says, well, I belong to God. Now the whole thing doesn't work, does it? You might ask, well, why does it matter what we do in, in our private rooms? We're consenting adults, right? Well, it does matter if one of those people belongs to God, right? You might say, well, what does it matter what I do with my body? Who is anybody else to tell me what to do with my own body? And the Lord says to Christians, you're not your own. You've been bought with a price. And so what you do with your body matters. That is why Christians are called to live holy lives, Not so we can earn a status with him, but because we belong to him, and so we live our lives differently. This is also why it is so good to be part of a church where things are not exactly as you would prefer them. This is one of my favorite things, actually, about our church, having all of the generations gathered together. We can't do things the way old folks want to do them, and we can't do things the way young folks want to do them. I want to tell you, I love that because that is so good for all of us. Why is that good for us? Why would I say that right here? Well, we go about our lives, and almost everything in our lives is just kind of how we prefer for it to be. Uh, The furniture in your house is probably how you want it to be as best as you can get it because it's yours and that's your house and you put it where you like it. I may not like the color of your couch, but it's your house, right? You can do it how you would prefer to do it. And the carpet maybe is your color. If not, you've got plans to get it to the color that you want to get it. And then you go to the restaurant and you look at the menu and you choose what you would prefer, like what you want, right? And you're doing that because you're paying. So yeah, you can do that. And then if you have Spotify or Apple Music, you pull that up on your phone and there's like a, a for you section that's like they, got, they built a bot to go out there and find all of the music that you would like and put it before you because it's, it's yours. It's for you, right? So everything is catered to the preferences that you have because it's yours. And then we come to church and God says, well, this is mine. And all of the sudden, we have to not worry so much about, well, if I were picking the songs, I would have picked a different song. Right? If, 
if I were arranging the instruments, I would have picked different because I like a different kind of music. Right? If I had chosen the carpet color, I would have chosen a different color. And so all of a sudden, we walk around in a building that may or may not be laid out how you would like it to be laid out, and carpet that may or may not be the color that you like, and music that may or may not sound how you like it, and the personality of a preacher that may or may not be just how you like. And we are reminded through and through this place doesn't belong to me, right? This church isn't mine, it's God's. And that's why we hold preferences so low and we hold substantive things so high. Why we take the preaching of the gospel so seriously. Why we take faithfulness to scripture so seriously. Because the things that matter to us don't matter as much anymore. The things that matter to God matter more. We do that because this church belongs to him. So there's the first part. When we come to Christ Jesus, he claims us as his possession. Second thing that it says the Lord does is he makes us holy. We become part of his holy church. He makes us holy. Uh, We see that twice in there. He says first, uh, sanctified in Christ Jesus. And then he says, called to be saints. And that word sanctified or saints just means holy or to be made holy. It's where we get words like sanctuary and other words that sound like that from. It just means holy. Uh, You may ask then, okay, well, what what does holy mean? Like, that's a strange concept to me. Uh, To be holy is to be set apart as different and better than all of the others. Uh, a good example might be uh, some of the shoes in your, in your closet. Um, maybe you have several pairs of shoes. Lots of people have lots of pairs of shoes, right? And I wonder if you have a couple of pairs of shoes that you're like, these ones are the special ones, right? Like I wear these maybe to church or maybe on a date. Uh, I like them more than other shoes. They're nicer, they're fancier than other shoes. Uh, These are not the kind of shoes that you would take and go run through the snow and the mud in and get all dirty because those are your nice shoes, right? Now you got other shoes that you're willing to mow the lawn in, you're willing to go run through the mud in, you're willing to do whatever, but you're not going to put on those special shoes for that. I know I got a couple of pairs of shoes like that, and maybe you do too. Well, in a sense, to use the word a bit loosely, those shoes are separate from in your heart and, and better than the other shoes in your closet. And that's a little bit of what holiness is like. Now, what's really incredible about this is that the Lord calls us holy before we are living holy lives, right? One thing I bet you don't do, I bet you don't go down to the garage and find your 15-year-old pair of, of Reeboks with the, with the soles falling off of them and like who knows, like some cow patty stuff like stuck on there and who knows what else is on there. All the grass from the years you've been mowing the lawn and these shoes on there. You don't take those and lift them up to the highest spot in your closet and say, I'm going to wear these bad boys to church this week, right? I'm going to wear that to the gala, right? Those with all the cow flakes like right on them. I'm just going to do it, Right. We don't do that because we know the difference between good shoes and bad shoes. But what the Lord has done is when you and I were those dirty shoes 
down in the garage that had no business going to church or work or to a gala or anything else, he reached down and he said, I'm going to make those ones holy. I'm going to declare those shoes as holy. That is why he calls us to live holy lives. Because he has already taken us from where we are and elevated us to a holy station. And so Paul will use that very same logic to call them to live holy lives later. So to just put it really simply, he has declared you holy and now he calls you to live a holy life. The church has long called that sanctification. There's that sanctus word again, sanctification. Uh, And it's two things. On one hand, God declares you holy when you come to him, so you're sanctified. And then he also progressively sanctifies you over the course of your life in terms of your lifestyle and the morality that you live with. So what Paul is going to do is he's going to call them, because they're already holy, to live holy lives. He's going to engage those Corinthians who were living in immorality, and he's going to say, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? You're a temple. You're a sanctuary. You're holy. Why would you then take that holy body and join it with a prostitute? Don't do that, right? He wants us to live holy lives because God has already made us holy. There's your motivation to fight that lingering sin that you know is so much work to fight. Those of you that fight habitual lingering sins, you know what I'm talking about. It is so hard to change that habit and lifestyle. And you know the effort it is going to take to kick this thing. I'm going to be laying exhausted in my bed when it's done with saying, how did I do that? How did I make it? Is it worth that kind of effort to leave sin behind and walk in holiness? It is. And the reason is because God has already made you holy. This speaks an encouraging truth to some of the ladies in the church as well. Um, I know from having a wife and having daughters that uh, finding modest clothes is really hard in the modern world. Uh, I remember being with my wife one time in the store thinking, like, how hard can it be, right? And we pick one off the rack, and it's great, but it's, like, cut super low. I'm like, I don't got to put that one back. And then you pick the next one off the rack, and it's fine, but there's a hole right there. Why is there a hole? Right? Like, they paid extra to put a hole right there, and you can put that. And just over and over, it's like every garment they sell has one immodest feature that they intentionally added, and it's frustrating for ladies, for those of you who are trying to walk in holiness and dress in modesty. How do you process that? Well, this actually speaks to that a little bit because part of how fashion works is it's built on social exclusion, right? Uh, We used to wear pants that look like that and are cut like that, but we don't do that. Now you got to wear pants that are cut like this and look like this. Don't be like the guys who were still wearing those pants that look like that. You want to be like the people wearing pants that are cut like this, right? Cool people wear clothes like this is the idea. And if you don't wear it, you're led to feel like you're not as cool as the other people, like you're the weirdo and they're the good people. 
Well, what Paul's saying here, if it's true that we're called to be saints, if it's true that we are sanctified in Christ Jesus, and that's why we're living differently, that means that the truth is the exact opposite of what the fashion world is making you feel. The reason you're not wearing their clothes is not because they're cooler than you. The reason you're not wearing their clothes is because their clothes are not good enough for you. Because you are too good for their clothes. You're not the weirdo. You're the holy one who sits above that and says, God has made me holy. He has made my body holy. And I'll put in the extra work to somehow find clothes that walk in that holiness with me. Now, that's true for that. It's also true for the one waiter in the restaurant who reports his tips honestly and just looks like a weirdo. Uh, It's true for the one guy in the office who doesn't go out and get drunk after work with the rest of them and just socially gets excluded and looks like the weirdo. All these things make you feel like you're not as good as the group. But the truth is that God is calling you to be better than the group. The reason you're different from the world is because God has declared you with a permanent seal holy before me. So wear that identity when you walk out of here today. All right, that's one and two. He claims us as his possession, and he makes us holy. Third thing it says he does is he unites us with his church. Uh, We see that about halfway through verse two. Together with all those who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is both their Lord and ours. So not only are you made holy and not only are you claimed by God as his, but there is a whole group worldwide at this point throughout history that he has also made holy and that he also calls his. And he has taken you and joined you with that group. He has taken this church and he has joined this church with that group of churches. And so you have and I have an inseparable forever bond with every believer in Jesus Christ who ever lived. They're holy too. They're called by God's own as well. I think it's helpful to think of that in two directions. So first, think of like the most admirable Christian, like on another level, you could never get to that person's level Christian. Maybe some celebrity preacher that you love and know you could never be like, and if you ever met them, you'd like shake in fear, just like the most sky-high Christian in the world. Think of them. You have with that person an inseparable forever bond, and in heaven you will know them forever. Now, Think of the most irritating Christian that you know personally, right? Hardest to be around, difficult, right? You have with that person an inseparable forever bond, and you will know them in heaven forever, right? Every Christian from the one in your mind that's top to the one in your mind that's at the bottom, you will know them forever. So that means, first of all, then, 
that we have no business dividing as churches over our favorite leaders, right? There's, there's just no sense in saying, I follow this guy and I follow that guy and the followers of this guy are warring with that guy and say, don't trust the people who follow that guy. The Lord doesn't want us to divide around leaders like that. He wants us to unite around him because we are all his. He will get into that very much in the next few chapters, so I'll leave that there. Uh, maybe most practically in your life, It means that the Lord calls you to bear patiently with immature and difficult Christians. If he calls you holy, he's called them holy as well. And you probably know, as I do, several Christians who are either new in their faith or just never developed in their faith, who have a couple of wonky things about the way they live and the way that they believe, but they've got their faith in Jesus Christ. And the Lord says, together with everyone and every place who calls upon the name of the Lord. It also means that Christian relationships and friendships are not disposable, which affects how we move from one place to another and how Christians think about leaving churches. Uh, In a world where you can have a Costco membership and then just decide you don't want to have a Costco membership anymore, I want to have a Sam's membership now, and you can just do it, right, because that's just disposable. And where you can have Hulu right now, and my wife and I are infamous for this, we got Hulu right now and cancel it, now we got Netflix, you know, right? Cancel it, now we got Disney, right? We just do that, it's disposable, right? You can throw that stuff away, right? Uh, In a world where so many things are disposable, Uh, One thing that is certainly not disposable is the relationships you have with your brothers and sisters in a church. Um, That changes how we act when when you move to a new city and then say, okay, I thought those people are still mine and that old church, I'm going to lean on their help as I find a new church. I need them praying for me as we settle in. Uh, That changes how we think about leaving one church and going to another from town to town. It sometimes does have to happen. A church becomes less faithful and you need to get out or something relational happens or any number of things like that. Never can we treat those relationships like they're disposable, all right? It's tempting to ghost the person you're texting with and just not talk to them again. Uh, You cannot ghost your brothers and sisters in the church, because we will know each other forever. We have a bond in Christ Jesus called together because we call upon the name of the Lord. That truth also helps us deal with some of the divisive things that happen in the church. Uh, for instance, churches divide sometimes now on, on racial issues and racial reconciliation issues. Some churches divide about alcohol And uh, sometimes the person criticizing the other person has a fair point to make, right? Uh, I'll give you an example. A lot of churches have divided over what to do about the history of racism in our country and how best to repair it. And there is some teaching and a framework in the Bible, but it only goes so far. And so there's a little bit of room for disagreement and opinion about how important that is and what needs to be done about it. And a number of different positions develop about that. Uh, But you certainly see people who would say something like, I believe in freedom of speech. We need to be able to say the things that we want to say. And so sometimes I just say things that sound offensive to people and they just need to get over it, right? People are just a little too loose with their lips when it comes to saying things that probably aren't racist, but maybe sound a little racist and probably going to offend somebody, There are people who are too loose with their tongues about that. 
On the other side, there are certainly people who are too sensitive about racial issues, right? Who get offended at things that they don't have any business getting offended by. And so what do you do when you have over here one person who's too loose with their tongue and says things they really shouldn't be saying, and over here another Christian who is too sensitive about those issues, and they're sitting four feet from each other in a pew trying to go to church together? How are they going to keep treating each other as brother and sister? How are they going to have grace for each other when the other errs in their own way? By looking at verse 2 and saying, I've been called holy, I've been called God's own, and so is this person who has some habits that I don't like, right? God has grace for us, and we have to have grace for each other as well. That's how churches continue to function and stay united when things begin to divide us. Now, that does not justify sin. That does not mean that sometimes leaders in the church need to get in there and correct this person who errs this way and that gently. Those things need to happen, but we have grace enough to love each other and continue our bonds anyway. I'll give you another example. Uh, when it comes to, um, to alcohol use, uh, the scriptures teach that drunkenness is a sin every time against God not to get drunk. Uh, but it does give us permission to, if you want to, to partake a little bit and just not get drunk. Jesus did that. He took it. He never got drunk. Uh, several others do in the Bible. Jesus changes water into wine. He doesn't condemn the people that he gives the wine to, right? So in moderation, the scriptures permit alcohol. And so there's two ways you can choose to live. You can choose to say, uh, well, I don't really have any interest in it, or I think it will probably tempt me too much if I dabble in it at all, and so I'm just not going to drink even a drop my whole life. You can choose to do that. Or you can choose to say, well, I'll, I'll have it in moderation, you know, one glass or so, you know, every once in a while, and just never get drunk. You can do one or the other. Now, people who have those two different views and two different lifestyles, I mean, we live together in this church just fine without any conflict over it. But what happens when the person who has chosen to abstain crosses the line and instead of just abstaining for themselves, begins to hold a, a legalistic and judgmental attitude about it? And then what happens on the other hand when the person who partakes every now and again, instead of having one, has four in a night and gets drunk? What, ha like what happens when each person goes a little too far? How are they going to get along after that? Well, there's only one way by both believing that God has forgiven us both for our sins, that God has called us both into relationship with him, that we both are loved by him and both are his and both are called holy. Only by respecting the bonds that he has given us can we still love each other when we're particularly sensitive to the way that the person on the other side has sinned against God? So if God can forgive us, we can forgive each other. Now again, that doesn't justify sin, right? It doesn't mean that leaders need sometimes to go into situations and say, this isn't right, you need to turn around from this, right? But it means that our bond is not separated when we see someone committing a sin that we are particularly sensitive to. It means some other things as well. Uh, this passage challenges me. I'll tell you how this passage challenges me. Uh, because we interact with sometimes uh, other churches in town 
who have done things that sound to me to be ethical heresy, uh, to support a sin like homosexuality, uh, to encourage children to mutilate their bodies, to try to change gender. The Church of God has no business doing that, right? And it is so tempting to me as a pastor to say, okay, you guys have just demonstrated that you're not believers, right? Believers don't do that kind of stuff. But if Paul can write to a church where there's a man who's sleeping with his stepmother committing ethical heresy at the same level, and the church is proud over that, right? They're waving the pride flag over that. And because they still retain their faith in Jesus, he can call them saints and then correct them and call them back to right living. Well, that changes how we look at churches who are going very far astray but still retain their testimony in the gospel. doesn't mean what they're doing isn't dangerous. It's dangerous. But those that retain the testimony of the gospel for as long as they do, the lamp of the Spirit burns there. And what we should do is with a gentleness in our spirit, correct them and call them back to the right way. If God calls them holy, we can call them holy as well. So maybe one way to say this is that the world is quick to judge out there, isn't it? Uh, Man, you hop on Twitter and boy, they're going to be on you like that, right? Christians, on the other hand, are quick to give a ride to church to somebody who we have a hard time being patient with, right? Christians are quick to watch each other's kids in the nursery when there's an issue that we don't totally agree about. Christians are quick to love and serve each other when the world around us is quick to judge each other. So there's some of the foundation that we're laying there. If your faith is in Jesus Christ for salvation and the forgiveness of your sins, he has made you a part of his people, and that can't be changed. He has made you holy, and that can't be changed. And he has called you as his own. That is why, Christian, you can live a life of holiness and a life of love. Let's pray.